Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Carlson S. F. W. Larson, Professor of Law at the University of California Davis School of Law. We will discuss his new book, The Trials of Allegiance, Treason, Juries, and the American Revolution, which is published by Oxford University Press. So welcome to the show, Carlton. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, the, the pleasure's all mine. As I was telling you earlier, when I saw the book announcement for, for your new book, I was like, I have to read that, you know, because it's like American Revolution, legal history, and like treason trials. I was like, this is like a trifecta. It's going to be so great. And I was not disappointed. It's really a, a great book, really beautifully written and fantastic, fantastically interesting information that you're providing that I'd never heard about before. Um, but it also became clear to me when I was reading the book that it seems like this is part of a, a bigger project that you've been working in this period and on some of these subjects for a long time. And so I wonder if we could start the interview by you kind of situating this book project in the context of your scholarship on the period more generally. Sure. This um, project actually began about 23 years ago um, when I was looking for my senior thesis in college. And I became fascinated by James Wilson, one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in the Constitution, uh, who was defending people accused of treason during the American Revolution uh, for aiding the British. Um, and I thought that was just fascinating. Um, first of all, that um, a lawyer of his stature on the American side would be doing that, uh, for one thing. Um, but then also, well, what did treason really mean during the American Revolution when it was this giant revolt against Britain, which itself was an act of treason against uh, Britain, um, and everybody potentially subject to a charge of treason, whether you remained loyal to the king or whether you were loyal to um, the United States. And so I got very fascinated by this and I decided to write um, about this um, as, a, as a history thesis. And I didn't have any legal knowledge. Um, what I wrote was not uh, legally sophisticated at all, um, but it gave me the bug um, for this subject. And then as I after went to law school and then um, got into practice, uh, it started to have a little bit more contemporary relevance um, with uh, September 11th and the issue of enemy combatant detentions. Um, and the law of treason has a, has a role to play in that. And so that kind of got me back into it, um, writing more as a, as a constitutional scholar than as an historian, um, arguing about how uh, this should inform our treatment of enemy combatants. And then I really decided to dig into the history once more, um, got another law review article out, out of that, and then finally decided it really needs to be a book. Um, someone told me, you know, historians don't read law review articles, so if you want to reach a history audience, you have to write a book. Mm, mm, mm. Well, so maybe you could talk a little bit about the state of the law of treason and related legal doctrines at the time of of the revolution. Yeah. So when the revolution happened, you had um, a pretty substantial body of English treason law that was rooted in the 1351 statute called the Statute of Treasons. And that was provided the framework for English law going forward. And you had lots of judicial decisions interpreting it and parsing it. And there's different parts to it. Various things in English law that seem kind of strange to us. Of course, compassing the death of the king is a crime, but also sleeping with the wife of the king's eldest son. Uh, those are types of treason. Uh, and so when the American uh, Revolution kind of began, or at least the early resistance activities prior to the Declaration of Independence, uh, there was a lot of debate about what this 
conduct amounted to? Was it treason uh, against uh, Great Britain to be taking all these actions against English authority? And there was a lot of debate about that. So that, you know, many English authorities thought, yes, the American colonists were committing treason and they were threatened with being hauled to England for trial um, and then uh, away from their beloved local jury. Um, while at the same time, uh, many colonial Americans said, no, 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 we're not the traitors, you're the traitors. Um, and they insisted that British officials, um, members of parliament, were themselves committing treason, that they were committing treason against the British Constitution, and that they were the ones um, who were being disloyal. So you had um, charges of disloyalty kind of um, you know, hurling across the Atlantic um, uh, up up until the, the war finally breaks out. And then it's, it's undisputed once the war breaks out that the Americans are committing uh, treason against Great Britain. Mm-hmm. I mean, it seems as if in a way there's these kind of deep ideological or theoretical difficulties in understanding what it means, as you say, from like both perspectives to talk about treason in that historical moment. And also like who exactly was the sovereign against whom you could be treasonous at any point in time? I mean, I guess you've got the United Kingdom or you've got Britain, but then you've also got like the United States as a whole, but then individual states and like how were people conceptualizing the sort of responsibility? Yeah, so on, on the on the British side, it was pretty easy because the the locus of sovereignty was the king. You committed treason against the king um, by levying war against him. Uh, but on the American side, it was much more complicated um, because once you conclude that loyalty isn't due to the king, then the question is, well, where is that locus of, of sovereignty? And one of the interesting things I found was that for the most part, it's not states. Um, technically, treason was prosecuted by the states. The offense was treason against a particular state. My book focuses on Pennsylvania, so most of these cases are treason against Pennsylvania. But the actual rhetoric rarely focused on states. You see people repeatedly referring to treason against America, treason against the United States of America, um, treason sometimes against the Constitution, treason against liberty, um, almost these sort of abstract ideals as... as um, um, loci of um, allegiance. Um, and that to me is, is fascinating because I think it suggests a, a sort of more national um, understanding of our country than this, the very state-focused approach that we sometimes are, are taught. Mm-hmm. When I was struck you know, by the fact that the focus of the book on Pennsylvania is really inflected by like historical events taking place in Pennsylvania in the early years of the American Revolution. And it's sort of like this initial conceptualization of treason and sovereignty and what it means to talk about loyalty is compounded with this, like at some, at certain points, it sounds like almost total breakdown in the rule of law. Yeah. I mean, the Pennsylvania has some very dark years. Um, once it had overthrown British authority, it took a long time to get um, sort of new authority up and running. And so that vacuum ended up being filled um, by you know, committees of safety, by the military, by occasionally random groups of private individuals, um, all with sort of a different approach to dealing uh, with disloyalty. And it took a while to get the courts up and running. And then just as the courts are about to get going, the British invade. Um, and then Philadelphia falls uh, to the British and is occupied um, from late 1778 through um, June of, of 1779. Uh, and so that too throws the state into a bit of chaos because um, now their state government has fled 
um, the Continental Congress is fled and they're all um, governing from exile. Mm-hmm. Well, and and so you, 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 among other things, you sort of talk about jockeying within the colonial or kind of post-revolutionary Pennsylvania state government in terms of who's going to be exercising authority at any particular time and the sort of dissolution and reformation of of the courts. Like in a nutshell, sort of what did Pennsylvania do legislatively executive wise and then sort of also also through the courts to try to kind of conceptualize the law of treason and think about what kinds of activities would constitute disloyalty during those early periods the legislature passed a, a treason statute um, which specified various offenses as high treason uh, it had a separate statute dealing with what was called misprision of treason and that dealt with um, lesser offenses that could be viewed as, as somewhat uh, disloyal. Um, it also empowered uh, the state's executive branch, which was a plural executive under the uh, unusual 1776 Constitution, um, to issue proclamations of attainder. And these proclamations essentially said that a person was uh, guilty of treason unless they showed up for trial within a particular time period. Um, very few people actually re- re- showed up within that time period. So <laughs> so people were essentially deemed attainted of treason and therefore had their property um, subject to forfeiture and potentially, um, if they were later caught, subject to execution without a trial. Um, that actually did happen to one person um, executed without a trial as a result of these mm. uh, attainders. And um, there were a few other people to whom that could have happened. Um, this person, I think, was particularly unlucky because um, his execution had been ordered the day before Benedict Arnold's treason became known um, in Pennsylvania. So I think he was primarily a victim uh, of bad timing. Uh, after that, the state was in a, you know, not in a particularly good mood uh, mm. with respect to accused traitors. Um, and so then judiciary really is um, you know, doing – I think quite a good job of judicial independence in terms of issuing rulings um, at times curbing um, the executive's power over um, detentions, um, asserting you know the, the writ of habeas corpus uh, again in cases of uh, detentions, and for the most part trying to ensure fair trials. Um, when you look at the rulings uh, the judges issued, they generally seem for the most part fairly fair. Uh, and balanced, and the sense that even in the middle of this convulsive, violent civil war, um, we're going to try to do uh, justice according to the you know, best lights we can do it by. Yeah, I mean, I was surprised by the extent to which, kind of, even in kind of the darkest days you just you describe of you know Philadelphia being occupied, you know, and uh, an awful lot of people engaging in activities that seem to satisfy the kind of statutory or common law requirements for a treason prosecution that the courts seem to be remarkably merciful with with respect to outcomes I and mean, there were a lot of acquittals a lot of people who were pardoned you know and not that many people it seems like who were executed why do you think that is well you know we kind of have this myth of the of the american revolution as you know the american people unanimously standing up against british tyranny and um, you know, the voice of the American people was to overthrow the king. Um, of course, the reality was far, far messier than that. And it's hard to know precisely, you know, who was an ardent patriot versus who was an ardent Tory and how many people were, were in between. Um, the reality was, I think there were just tons of people um, in between who could have been pushed either way. Um, and it's pretty clear that a lot of them 
you know, cooperated with the British during the invasion. Uh, and so the number of people who potentially could have been charged uh, with treason was really quite large. Uh, and only a, f- a handful ultimately went to trial. The book documents, I think, about 46 uh, actual trials that went uh, all the way through jury verdict. And for the most part, uh, those people are uh, acquitted. And I think there's there's really two reasons for that. One is they didn't trust the state's executive um, to pardon the people. Uh, and so they knew that if they convicted, it would mean an execution. Um, and secondly, they just didn't think execution was an appropriate punishment. Mm. Uh, that is, even though treason is the highest crime known to the law, in practice, it just didn't seem that way. Um, because so many people had done this, pretty much everyone knew someone on the other side. Maybe it's a um, a brother or a son or a father um, or a business associate or, or, or a friend, a classmate. Um, it's very hard to say that those people are sort of incorrigible, evil criminals, uh, as opposed to people who just made a political mistake. Um, and granted, this is you know as violent a political disagreement as one can have. Um, but I think the sense was that, you know, the person – even that person who sided on the other side could was still ultimately a decent person um, mm. and they could potentially be redeemed and made a useful citizen and that um, executing them just wouldn't serve um, any constructive purpose. Yeah, I mean, it seemed like the only prosecutions that really sort of were aggressively pursued were ones where somebody was engaging in like intentionally, overtly kind of like spying type behavior or, you know, especially sort of reprehensible sort of betrayal of the American cause. And that like these more venial type forms of treason, it seemed like maybe people were willing to cut more slack to. Yeah, I think that's true. And and, and and the very worst people had all, none of them ended up in front of a court in, in Pennsylvania. They were long gone. And mm. the people who, who ended up there were the people who stayed um, mm. after the British left. Uh, and so you've already called out some of the some of the worst people. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So part of your book also talks about a series of kind of higher profile treason trials that took place in in Pennsylvania during the period after the British had gotten kicked back out of of Philadelphia. And in particular, you spent a lot of time talking about the grand jury and the composition of the grand jury and the grand jury's kind of relationship to other political and ideological bodies in in Pennsylvania and Philadelphia at the time. I wonder if you could kind of give some color as to what it was like to experience a judicial proceeding and specifically a, a treason proceeding like the one you described at, at that point in time. I mean, what did they look like? What kind of, who was participating and how were they kind of asked to decide these cases? So ultimately the, the sheriff of Philadelphia County selected um, the members of the grand jury and then selected the panel for the, for the trial jury. Uh, and these turned out to be two very different groups of people. Um, so I spent a lot of time you know, reconstructing the demographics of, of who these folks were. Uh, and the dem- and the grand jurors, for the most part, were very wealthy people. Um, and they were also people who had been much more active in early um, resistance activities. Um, so they were sort of fairly prominent, ardent um, revolutionaries. Um, by contrast, the trial jurors are, are of a much more modest economic background, 
Um, they're certainly not poor, um, but few of them um, would one describe as, as especially wealthy. Um, pr- um, primarily um, tradesmen um, with a variety of um, religious and ethnic backgrounds. Uh, and they were whittled down uh, by the use of peremptory challenges. So in, at, th- at this time, the defense got 35 peremptory challenges uh, and the prosecution got zero. Uh, and so over a series of, of, of trials, um, able, able to sort of figure out the way the defense attorneys uh, use these challenges uh, in ways that consistently sort of nudged the jury uh, in ways favorable to the defense. So it looked like they wanted um, older jurors. They wanted jurors with English background. They wanted wealthier jurors. Um, they wanted jurors who hadn't done their militia duty. Um, uh, they wanted jurors who um, were not, um, you know, ardent revolutionaries as, as one would expect. Um, and so in all those ways, the jury gets shaped, um, by, I think, sort of shrewd use of peremptory challenges by defense counsel. Mm, mm. Well, so I also felt like there were, there were sort of like two figures who seemed to play an especially prominent role in the story that you're telling. And one, one was McKean and the other was Wilson. And I wonder if you could just kind of give, uh, like a quick sketch of who the two of them were and why they ended up being so important and sort of like the role that they played in shaping the, um, you know, kind of American political and constitutional consciousness in the early Republic. Yeah. So the story, the book opens with this account of James Wilson um, in his house in uh, October, 1779 uh, as the house is being attacked, and he's in there with a bunch of other um, wealthy men, and a group of um, soldiers are coming down the street, um, shooting at the house. Eventually, um, the, this battle ends with six or seven people dead. Um, the soldiers leave, um, but the soldiers are not actually British soldiers. Um, they are um, American militiamen um, who are upset with Wilson because of his role um, in the treason trials. Um, so he literally put his life on the line uh, by doing what he did as a defense attorney. And to me, this is really one of the great stories uh, of a lawyer during the American Revolution. I think we all know the story of John Adams and, and the Boston Massacre. Um, but this, in some ways, is even more of a compelling story um, than what Adams did. Um, and Wilson went on to become one of the primary drafters of the U.S. Constitution, um, the, one of the first justices of the United States Supreme Court. He delivered the first law lectures in the United States. Um, tremendously important and interesting man. He's also an immigrant. He comes uh, to the U.S. from Scotland uh, in his 20s. And we don't know anything about him, in part because of the way he died, which was um, running from his creditors. Um, while a justice, he was in debtor's prison uh, at least once. Um, and so his sort of ignominious end kind of put a, a shadow over his, his later accomplishments. And so he's just not spoken of in the same way we speak of you know, Madison or Jefferson, but I think he really is mm-hmm. uh, in many ways at the same level as them. Uh, and so Thomas McCain was the chief justice of Pennsylvania. He was a, a, a very ambitious person. He simultaneously served as a member of the Continental Congress uh, from Delaware while he was also chief justice of Pennsylvania. Um, this was a problem because the Pennsylvania Constitution said that you couldn't be a Pennsylvania Supreme Court justice and also serve in Congress. Um, he said, well, that only means I can't be a delegate from Pennsylvania, um, but I can still be a delegate from Delaware, um, which was an ingenious argument. Um, and so he continued to do that. Uh, and he ends up presiding over um, all of the treason trials because 
the justices of the Supreme Court, um, they were um, in the early part of the, of, of the book, three of them, and then later became four. Um, they presided over all felony cases, and so they traveled around on circuit in different counties in Pennsylvania to preside over them. Um, and he by far seems uh, sort of the dominant member of that bench. The other justices were there, but they don't seem to have um, had anywhere near the personality of McCain. And he cared deeply about an independent judiciary, and he was um, always willing to assert the rights of judges against the other branches uh, of government. And so in many ways, he's sort of a, an early Pennsylvania version uh, of John Marshall. Mm-hmm. Well, I wonder if you could like reflect on a particular treason trial during the period that you think was sort of especially representative or kind of a good example of what was at stake and sort of what kinds of problems were presented and how the courts went about sort of resolving those those issues. So actually the um the, the actually the very first trial that happened once the the courts get up and running um was a trial in Chester County um of a wheelwright named uh, Joseph Mallon um and he was charged with um going over to um the British um joining a British um corps of, of soldiers um well um he's defended by James Wilson and George Ross um, both of these men are signers of the Declaration of Independence, um, and they contest this case vigorously. Um, um, there later became the myth of the so-called Philadelphia lawyer, meaning just um, a, a lawyer who will fight every you know tooth and nail of, of a case, and and that's absolutely what they did um, in this situation. And one of the arguments they made was this guy actually didn't commit treason because the people he fled to, he thought they were British soldiers, uh, but they weren't. They were actually American soldiers. Um, so he had essentially attempted uh, to commit treason, but hadn't done it. Um, and so therefore his action as such couldn't amount uh, to treason. And so they argued that that evidence was inadmissible, uh, and the court agreed. Um, the, the court later agreed to admit evidence that he had been um, seen um, uh, in, a, uh, in the company of British troops, um, but you know that was pretty a pretty aggressive position, and ultimately the jury uh, acquitted him. Mm. Uh, and so this mm. was the first person um, who went to a jury trial uh, for high treason during the American Revolution, and um, he walked. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. So I wonder if you could talk as well um, a little bit about how sort of the experience of thinking about the concept of treason during the revolution informed the way that Washington, the executive, the courts conceptualized treason in the early American Republic, because, you know, there were all of those rebellions and so on in which, you know, arguably treasonous behavior was taking place. Like, how was their experience in the post-revolutionary moment informed by their experience in the pre-revolutionary or the during the revolution? Yeah, it's a very interesting question because it raises, you know, the question of like the Whiskey Rebellion um, and Freeze's Rebellion, both of which happened in Pennsylvania, where uh, you had people you know, sort of violently protesting uh, federal taxes. Uh, and on the one hand, the, the protesters argued that we're the true heirs of the American Revolution. Um, we're doing what essentially what the American Revolution was all about, which was a violent protest against uh, taxation that was perceived as unjust. Um, 
But I think, you know, Washington and Hamilton and other leaders had a very different view, which was um, those taxes were illegitimate because we had no share in them. Uh, you know, we didn't get the consent. We had no rep- members in parliament. Um, but now in our new American Republic, um, you had a right, you know, through the U.S. House of Representatives to vote for representatives who laid uh, the taxes. Um, and therefore, violent opposition is simply inappropriate. Uh, and the way to solve this is not through um, through bullets, but through ballots. Um, and so even though there was in some sense to them a, a super, superficial comparison between their earlier actions and the and the new tax protests, um, they view them as fundamentally different um, because of that change in, in government. Mm-hmm. Well, so, so Carlton, in, in closing, I wonder if you could reflect a little on how you think your project and your book can help us better understand the kind of social meaning of the concept of treason, the concept of loyalty, and the concept of sovereignty in in the early republic. Because it seems to me it speaks really deeply in a lot of ways to all of those questions. Yeah, so at, at a very broad level, in some ways the book is about, you know, what does it mean to be an American and um, what does it mean for there to be something called the United States of America to whom people owe uh, allegiance? And so um, it argues a, a fairly nationalist reading of um, the revolution. That was when people really thought about what they were doing and where they thought where their ultimate loyalty really rested. Um, it was with something called the United States of America, um, even more so uh than, than with their states. Um, and I think that's not just rhetoric. I think that that really was a real uh, perceived uh, allegiance. Um, and I think the other thing that one can take away is just um, the, the, the incredible messiness of this, that this was hard. This was a hard slog. And it was especially hard slog for the people who uh, lived through it, um, particularly those who weren't uh, maybe necessarily allied with with either side, um, and the question then is, well, how does law deal with those people? And so I think the book can tell us a lot about how uh, law functions in a time of uh, enormous social upheaval. Uh, and on balance, I think the law actually worked fairly well. Um, and for the most part, we didn't have a lot of knee jerk. Um, you know, let's just rip up uh, all the law's reaction to crisis, um, but a sense that we needed to work through this um, in a way consistent with uh, existing legal norms. Yeah, I mean, it really struck me that there was something that it was like the creation of the concept of Americanness was so deeply informed by this kind of legalistic concept of, you know, what what treason could mean, right? That they were sort of like like in a dialogue with each other during the entire period you describe. Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you so much. It's been really great having you on the show. I love the book. Um, uh, I encourage people to read it because, I mean, honestly, we we barely scratched the surface of the like really phenomenal research you did in putting this project together. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.
a great Philadelphia lawyer was in love with a Hollywood maid. Come love and we will wander down where the lights are bright. I'll win you a divorce from your husband and we can get married tonight. While Ten notches were carved in his gun. All the boys around Reno left Wild Bill's maiden alone. One night when he was returning. His Hollywood sweetheart Her love was as lasting as gold As he drew near her window A shadow he saw on the shade T'was the great Philadelphia lawyer Making love to Bill's Hollywood maid The night was a still The moon hanging high overhead Bill listened a while to the lawyer He could hear every word that he said Your hands are so pretty and lovely Your form so rare and divine Come go with me Philadelphia 